0: Hello, everybody. My name is Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe, Now What? Welcome back to another episode of I Believe, Now What? If this is your first time here, we are a podcast that is geared towards just making theology and church doctrine and biblical doctrine and all these other things that you may hear about easily accessible and understandable. Our goal is to grow the body, the church, the Christian in grace and knowledge. If you are just recently uh, joining us or you've been following along, we just wrapped up our series on marriage, singleness, and divorce. And we're going to move into our next series, which is really going to be called What makes a church a church? And we're going to dive into different types of church doctrine. This is going to be really helpful for you if you are maybe looking for a church or you're trying to figure out if the church that you're in is the church for you. And even if you're a leader, maybe you can get some tips and pointers from a different perspective on how the Bible talks about what makes a church a church. So, with all that being said, we're going to get into our first topic, and the first one we're going to go over is church discipline. Now, some of you may be asking, why why church discipline for the first one? Well, no real reason at all, but this is very important. If you are looking for a church, you need to ask your pastor what their stance is on church discipline. How do they operate in it? If you are in a church and you don't know what the church's stance is on it, you need to ask about it. Uh, And if you're looking in maybe starting up a church or you're in leadership, this will be a great episode in guiding you in how to execute church discipline, because at the end of the day, this is a doctrine that Jesus talked about, and he was kind enough and amazing enough to label it out in a step-by-step format, and we're going to be going over exactly that. So first thing we need to do, let's define what church discipline is. Church discipline, in my own definition, are the actions taken by the assembled group of believers, also known as a church, on individuals who are committing acts or a single act of unrepentant sin. So essentially, it's correction. It's the same type of correction a parent would give their child. They do it out of love, and they do it because they want that child to come back and into fellowship and repentance, The next thing we need to know is why. Why should a church execute church discipline? Why should a church be practicing this doctrine? Well, first off, it's commanded by Jesus that we as Christians are to confront sin in a fellow brother and sister. And you'll see that as we go through our passages Uh, Number two, this keeps sin from spreading in our churches. Sin is like a cancer. If you do not cut it off at the source and throw it out, it's going to spread and infect the whole church. You know, I'm in the army and one of the sayings that we have is, if you see someone doing the wrong thing and you as a leader walk by and don't correct them, what did you just do? You just set a new standard. And this applies perfectly to our topic. If you do not make the correction... On someone, when you see a fellow brother or sister sinning, essentially you are letting that person continue to believe that what they're doing is okay in a sense. Or even worse, maybe they know it's wrong and you know it's wrong, but you don't say anything anyways to them and they just keep on doing it. And that changes their opinion of what they think about you too. Many times, and this is something I've found in my walk of life, many times when a a new believer is maybe committing unrepentant sin, the moment somebody comes up to them and lets them know, hey, man, you know what, what you're doing right here? Uh, and I say this in all love and kindness, you know, it's not right. This is against the Bible. And they, they'll probably go, oh, it, it, it is? It's against the I can't do that? Oh, can you show me where? Oh, my gosh, it is there. I'm, You know what? I'm never going to do that again. Uh, maybe not that extreme, but <laughs> essentially a lot of sin is committed by new believers and even sometimes some old believers who just aren't learning is because of pure ignorance. You know, if you never knew, God doesn't just snap his fingers and instantly we know everything there is to know about the Bible. God constantly is growing us. It's a growth, it's a transformation. And you see this not just in our walk of life, but this is how God always operates. Just read the entire Bible, you'll see God works things in a step by step type plan. It's all in his plan. Third reason why we need to practice church discipline is because it protects the holiness of the church. In so many passages, we see that the church is to be holy and spotless and without blame. Not only this, but we as the church are a testimony to the unbelieving world. When when, when people publicly know that you are a Christian, but yet you go out and live a life contrary to the Bible, people notice that. And they will either one, generalize their view of what Christianity is based on how you act, or two, they will assume that you are nothing but a hypocrite. And sadly, a lot of people in the world today look at Christians and look at them as hypocrites because there's a famous quote by Brennan Manning that says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door. And deny him by their lifestyle. That quote is so true. So many people get turned off of Christianity because they see people who are so called professing Christians being complete and utter hypocrites, walking in a different lifestyle than the religion that they claim to follow this quote that we just read that that quote rings of Titus chapter 1 verse 16 where it says they profess to know god but by their deeds deny him see this was even happening in apostle paul's time and it's still going on today and it does not do justice to protecting the purity of the church when their local community and you say you're in a church in a local community and that church is running rampant with specific sins, that word will get out and people will know. And if actions aren't taken on those sins, especially if they're in leadership, uh, people will assume that you are nothing but a giant hypocritical church. Now, with all that said, I want to keep this in mind throughout the entire message. The number one goal of church discipline is to bring this person committing the sin back into repentance, back into fellowship. As we look at Jesus' instructions, as we go through the passages we go through today, uh, how to carry this out, how to carry out church discipline, we must keep in mind this truth. The goal is to bring them back into repentance. Jesus gave us a step-by-step guide in how to execute these actions. But with each step, bringing that person back into fellowship is the number one goal. You want to make them see their sin and they repent of it. And that's something the Holy Spirit will convict in them. But you have to act out with your words and point that out to them. The reason why this topic is so important today, more so honestly, in my opinion, than ever seen before, is because we have an explosion of progressive and liberal churches that do not practice church discipline with their members and with their leaders. I, what, what are progressive and liberal churches, if you don't know? Those are pretty much churches who view the Word of God, the Bible, it's not really authoritative. You know, It's it, you, you can talk about it if you want, but it's not really the final word. Very feelings-based churches are, are typically liberal and progressive churches. They twist scripture around and sometimes don't even read it. They're like, oh, well, that's kind of subjective. No, that's 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 what those churches do. These are also the type of churches that will not execute church discipline. They will let sin continue on saying words like, oh, well, who am I to judge and judge not lest you be judged, taking verses out of context. These are the people that will let sin run rampant in their church like we talked about and spread like a cancer. I I was in one church one time, and like I said, I'm in the military, so I move around a lot. I'm always checking out different churches. And in fact, we had to leave this church because of this. Divorce, was such a sin in this church. It was going on like crazy, and it was never addressed, and at least publicly. It was definitely never addressed. And because of that, you had people in the church actually doing things like giving advice to others on how to make as much money as you can through your divorce off your spouse and all these other very sinful things. It's very disturbing. But that all stems back from not executing church discipline properly. But it's just not the liberal and progressive churches that have an issue with this. We can swing the pendulum the other way, and you have hardline conservative churches that will straight up say, oh, one cent, you're out, get out of the church, we're kicking you out, and you're done. And they don't care about bringing them back, they just want to kick them out of the church. That's also wrong. What we want to see here is we're going to examine in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus' words as he goes through a step-by-step process on how to execute church discipline. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. If you're driving, please don't do that. Just listen up and read it afterwards. But Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 reads like this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be have bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their mists. Oh, Dear Heavenly Father, as we go through this message, Lord, please just wipe out our preconceived notions, Lord, and just see what you have to offer Thank you so much for everything that you do, Lord. May we exercise your words the best possible way through the power of you and the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, God. In Jesus' name we pray, your will alone. Amen. So, first off, as we are going through this, you may have noticed, depending on which Bible translation you are reading, that I said verse 15 maybe a little bit differently than your Bible says. Some Bibles will say, "If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private." And others may say, "If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private." And I, I'm not going to get bogged down in this because this is a whole nother episode um, <laughs> talking about this. But it's important for your notes and personal studies. What, what what this is right here? This is known as a textual variant, and many of our Bibles you may notice, may have a a note next to it, or it may be bracketed. The words against you may be bracketed, or there could be an asterisk or something like that. And if you scroll down to the margin or in the side or the bottom of the page, it may say for verse 15 that many of the older manuscripts do not contain these words, specifically the words against you. So what does that mean for us today? So essentially over time, as we have done more archaeology, we have better technology, and we're going through these biblical towns, these old-school biblical towns during the time of the apostles, and we're finding other manuscripts. And these manuscripts are older than the ones we had previously. And in these older manuscripts, we can get a better idea of what the original letter said. Because if you didn't know, we don't have the original documents. We don't have the original letters that the apostles wrote. And honestly, I'm kind of glad we don't. Because if we did, you would see either one, they would get enshrined and people would start worshiping. And number two, somebody could alter them. But instead, we have these thousands of copies that match almost word for word with only one or two little discrepancies, this being one of them. So we're going to go ahead and stick with our text and use the oldest text where it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if you want to learn more about textual criticism, or really just honestly keeping your confidence up that what the Bible, that Bible that you're reading, the message in there today is true and reliable, and we have good source knowledge for this, go watch this documentary called The God Who Speaks. It's free on Amazon Prime. If you have a Prime account, I believe it's on Netflix, and I definitely know it is on YouTube for free as well. So go ahead and watch it. Great production quality. It is an amazing documentary, and you will learn so much about this subject there. Now, moving on, let's get back to our original text. All right. So very first verse in verse 15, if your brother sins, Jesus says, and we're going to stop right there because we already have some clarity First off, we see Jesus saying, by the words brother right here, and you can interchange that with sister, if your brother sins, we see Jesus is saying that this is only for fellow believers. This is only for Christians, not for unbelievers. You're going to see later as we examine other verses that we as Christians have no business judging the unbelievers that are in the world. That is for God to do but we do have the business of correcting and pointing out the error of those inside the church. And don't, And I know Christians are very fast to go ahead and pull up an out of context Bible verse and say, oh, don't judge lest you be judged or something like that. Once again, they take that very out of context. We as the church are in the business of correcting and pointing out error. But once again, we do it in kindness, love, and gentleness, not lording it over them you did this i'm so much better than you You know we don't do that i honestly believe this is exactly why jesus in just the passage above talked about the whole 99 sheep if you never read that it's the, the 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 one sheep that runs away and goes away and then the shepherd goes out and grabs that sheep and brings him back to the rest of the flock and he rejoices over the one sheep because he got it back That is the light we need to read this passage in. We need to have that goal of bringing that person back to repentance through church discipline, not to point fingers and and act all holier than thou. Another key when going about this step, the confronting the person in step here, we need to make sure that we are actually doing this with knowledge of the sin, meaning firsthand knowledge of the sin. We don't want to go off of rumors because that's how really the rumor train gets started is you hear somebody say this and that, and then you go up to the person and start pointing fingers and whatnot. Don't do it off of rumors. Only do it if you have firsthand knowledge that they sinned. Now, maybe you are close to this person who's the offender who's committing this sin, and you hear rumors about them spreading around. Well, at that point in time, I probably would agree that you have... uh, the ability because you are close to that person to go talk to him and be like, hey, man, Brother Joe, like I heard this was going on, you know, around the church. Like, is that true? And, and maybe talk to him and approach him that way. But once again, it, it good rule of thumb, approach them only if you have knowledge of the sin, like firsthand knowledge of that sin. Don't want to be in the rumor business. Now, if we continue on in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And now here is another key lesson. Right here. Step two almost. We do it in private. We don't tell everyone in the church. We don't blast it all over Facebook. We don't go, hey, man, did you hear what uh, Brother Joe was doing? Yeah, you know. No you tell them in private. You get alone with that person. You go to them, go and show him. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them and you do it in a private place in a private setting and once again in kindness and gentleness. Now, I know people this this step right here this cuz this is the first step, the one-on-one Christian confrontation here. People have different personalities and some people truly hate confrontation. I mean, I know myself, I'm not a huge fan of it, but at the end of the day, we have to overcome that fear. If your brother or sister is truly sinning because the last thing that we want to do is see them suffer and fall, we need to point out that sin to them. I mean, Jesus himself, he is the prime example of this. Just read through the scriptures. He was able to so specifically point out sin uh, in in people's lives, and he did it in loving loving ways. He did it in kindness, but he was also stern about it and upfront and he didn't beat around the bush. Great example. Go read John chapter four. If you've never read it before, that's the woman in the well where he confronts her about her sin. Perfect example. Now the last part on verse 15, Jesus says, if, you, if he listens to you, your brother, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now this is awesome here. You see Jesus's true intent here. The goal is once again, as we've been saying, is to not point fingers at this person, but to bring this person back to repentance. And I just want to add here, if the person repents and you point out their sin and they're like, oh my gosh, I, 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 I was wrong. Thank you so much for doing that or whatever. It may not go exactly that way. But once they repent of that sin, there's no need to go any further. Don't see step two or so forth and so on. Be there for that person. Let them know that you're there for them, but nobody else really needs to know about it. You don't need to go and spread to the church, hey, I saw... Brother Jim over there and doing sin and I confronted him and he stopped and he admitted it. You know, if he wants to do that, then let him do that. You don't do that. It stops right there. You don't bring it up. You don't hold it over their head. Maybe the sin was bad enough to where you think maybe they need some counseling or something like that. And you say you're going to be there for them. You can recommend something. You know, it's a case by case basis. But at the end of the day, it stops right there. You no need to go on to the other steps. I just want to also add here, this one-on-one contra- uh, confrontation where you're confronting this person and their sin, if everybody in the church did this, just think about this, man, the pastors counseling and appointment books would probably shrink so much. Uh, not not throw, throwing a bone there for the pastors, but it really would if we were just be the first line of defense, because that's what we are. We're, we should be the ones confronting it. Hopefully it would never get to the church. But people don't always listen. And that's where step two comes into play. Step two is in verse 16, where Jesus says, But he, if he, your brother, does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So let's break this down. So once again, We see if step number one fails, we move on to step number two, which is this step. We see Jesus saying that we now need to get other people involved. And once again, these should be fellow brothers and sisters, believers with us. We don't just grab random people off the street. And Jesus here is actually quoting or referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And to get a better understanding, we're going to go back there and look at that right now. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. In that passage, it says a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. All right, so what's this verse saying? Essentially, it's saying that no one should ever be punished with only one witness, mainly because what if that one witness is a liar? you know, you hate to go that route, but it's true. This is kind of the same way it works in our court system. So if punishment was ever going to be carried out for a person's sin in this time, there should be at least two or three people who have firsthand knowledge of that offense. And that is key right there. Firsthand knowledge of that offense. So taking this passage From back then and applying it to today, we can infer that when we go back to the person committing the sin after they refused to repent the first time when it was one-on-one in private, we need to gather people who also have first-hand knowledge on this matter. Now, I understand this could be a tough one because this means you actually have to talk about it now, and we don't want to get, once again, in the business of spreading rumors around. But at the same time, we have to gather witnesses. Maybe this is a sin that lots of people know about. You know, that's kind of the easy way. But what if it's a sin where you are the only person who witnessed this person doing this sin? Well, number one, you need to be bathed in prayer with this. You need to be praying over what you need to do because the next step that comes is skipping step number two because you don't have any other witnesses and going to step number three and taking it to the church. Now, obviously, when you do this, you can't expect the church to take discipline right away unless the person admits then what they're doing is wrong. But the church should not condemn this person if he still refuses to repent of his sin or he's not admitting, at least, that he's doing the sin. Uh, The church really can't take any action against it because it's only one witness. And like we said, what if that one witness has some type of personal grudge or something like that? As church leadership, this is a difficult place for you to be in. But this is the reason why you're in leadership, for you to make these decisions. Uh, But my suggestion would be take into consideration, bring the person in and talk to them. And honestly, if they end up repenting and admitting their fault, then great, we want our brother back. But if they don't, well, we can't necessarily punish them because it's only one Person's word versus another, if you know what I'm saying. Now, let's just say you are able to gather your witnesses and they have knowledge of what's going on. And you go to this person, you got to be careful because this can really turn into a mob mentality scene where everybody just starts pointing fingers. Instead, we come to them once again, like we've been saying, in love and kindness and gentleness and trying to, the number one goal, bringing them back into fellowship if that person repents, once again, we stop it right there. It does not leave that room or those witnesses, and you don't go and brag or talk about it behind people's backs. It stops right there. Obviously, if this is a type of sin that maybe needs further counseling or follow-up, we offer that to them. But like I said, it stops there. We are not in the business of spreading rumors. But sadly, if that person does not repent, and they do not recognize that what they're doing is wrong, or even worse, they recognize it's wrong, but they don't care, we have to move on to step number three, which is found in verse 17. So verse 17 starts off with, if he refuses to listen to them, to the witnesses, tell it to the church. So how do we go about this today? Well, first off, we don't go and run and tell everybody in the congregation what brother, joe or billy bob or whatever whoever it's going to be uh, we don't go and spread it all around and tell them what they're doing oh yay, brother bob is living with another woman that's not his wife you know we don't go do that (laughs) it honestly needs to be brought to the church leadership or as paul calls it the church overseers or the elders first The elders and the pastors are the first ones to know. And really, honestly, they're the only ones to know. And this is for a very specific reason, because they're the ones in charge. So as the pastor or the elder, how do we do this? Well, first off, we need to confront the offender. We need to hear what they have to say. Uh, Keeping in line with all of our basic rules here and love, kindness, and gentleness. And with the goal of bringing them back to repentance If we bring them in and talk to them, if they repent of their ways, the process once again stops there. There's no need to take it any further. Pastor doesn't get on the pulpit and say, oh, brother so-and-so was running off doing this, but we corrected it. No, just end it there. It doesn't need to go any further. This person has repented and they are being brought back into fellowship. Now, if they refuse to repent, this is where things get real difficult, especially for you in church leadership. If the offender is guilty, but still refuses to listen to the church, then you got to move on to the final step, step number four. And that is where it says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, you are to cut off fellowship with this person. You are to kick them out of the church, essentially. And not just the church leadership, but the entire congregation should do this as well. And this is going to be tough for so many people because maybe the offender has many friends in that church. Maybe the offender has has at one point done great things in that church, uh, at least in human standards. But the Bible is clear. We are to cut off fellowship from that person. As Jesus says, let them be as a Gentile or a tax collector or an unbeliever is probably the best way to put it in today's words. Let them be as an unbeliever to you. Now, before you think, oh my gosh, this is so cruel, or I know someone in this life, let me just give you the reasons of why we cut fellowship off from that person and we essentially excommunicate them out of the church. Number one, And there's probably more than this, but these are some of the ones that I've found throughout reading the Bible. Number one, the hope is by cutting that person off, the benefits that come from being in fellowship with other believers are now gone. And once again, the goal is hopefully they will repent of their ways and forgiveness is then to be applied to them and brought back into fellowship. Uh, By cutting them off, if you didn't know, we have blessings from God, we have the protection of the church. You know, not just to mention that the church is always there to help you. If you're in a good church, then they're there to help meet your needs, maybe in tough times. But also the spiritual blessings that come from being in a church, the things that God does, the things that we don't see every day, those blessings essentially get cut off. And the hope is through that suffering, really, because there's no other way to put it. Through that suffering that that person is about to go through, they repent of their ways and ask for forgiveness. Now, number two, another reason why we need to do this. If you've ever gone through, or if you've gone through those four steps, but the person did not repent any step of the way, they did not show guilt for what they were doing, that gives a very strong indication that that person may not actually even be a Christian. At the end of the day, I know this sounds like a crazy concept in 2021, but church is meant for the believer. It's not for the unbeliever. So many churches today get in these evangelistic moods where their only goal is to save people and then they end up starving their sheep because they're only giving milk messages, not solid meat messages. The end, At the end of the day, the church is supposed to be the person, the building, the church building, the leadership there. They're supposed to be growing those Christians in knowledge, kind of like what we try to do here on this podcast. There should be growing the church. And then the people in the congregation are to go out and be the evangelists and bring people in, that kind of stuff. The church was never meant to be the number one evangelistic tool. It was supposed to be the believers inside that church that are the evangelizers. So, having an unbeliever inside your church who is constantly living in unrepentant sin is not something a church should be putting up with for all the reasons that we've been going over. And that gets into reason number three. If you let them stay in the church, that sin, as we keep on saying, will spread like a cancer. And not only that, you as a pastor or an elder in leadership, if you don't stop it there and execute church discipline, you're pretty much giving free license to keep repeating that sin over and over and over again throughout your congregation. Because if you don't punish that person, but then you go to try to punish somebody else, you don't have a leg to stand on because you let that sin go in the past. Now, there's a lot of little nuances, and I understand that go with that, but essentially the best thing to do is just follow the black and white, follow what the Bible says, and then you won't have to worry about those nuances. Reason number four, we have to protect the holiness of the church. We have to protect the holiness of the assembled saints, and we already talked about this in the opening act, where we talked about how if you let sin run rampant in your church, people in the outside world will see that, and then you're thus creating a new standard for the church that is really not a standard at all. And then reason number five, and this really is all we truly need, we are commanded to do this. Jesus' words are clear here. If they refuse to repent from their sin, they are to be kicked out of the church. And I don't say that to be cruel. I say that because of all the reasons that we just talked about because we want this person to genuinely come back to repentance. Now, lastly, we're going to go through verses 18 through 20, and we're going to kind of speed through these. Uh, to get to our next scripture, but verses 18 through 20 says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you gather and agree, I read that wrong, but in verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything That they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. What Jesus is saying here must be kept in the context of church discipline many churches today will take verse 18 so far out of context by thinking that they have the power to 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 bind sickness or bind satan or all these other things. I mean you you can go on YouTube and find some of these usually more charismatic churches saying stuff like I bind you satan in the name of Jesus. I bind cancer. I bind bad finances or all these other things. They're they're trying to use this verse but they're using it way out of context this verse is specifically talking about church discipline i mean the last i checked i mean if you're if you're binding up satan every week uh who keeps who keeps letting them out if you're binding up cancer every week uh, why are people still getting sick of cancer i mean either they don't have the power that they claim to have or they're severely misinterpreting this verse and i believe it's the latter they are not placing the proper context on it. The context is church discipline. If you as a church, what Jesus is saying is when you get to that final step of church discipline and decide whether or not to kick this offender out, God is going to honor that conclusion. Because as verse 20 says, when the saints are assembled in Jesus' name, Jesus is in their midst, guiding their decisions and honoring their decisions. I uh we're going to get into this we we talked a little bit about it but let's go ahead and go to first corinthians chapter five and we're going to see what the apostle paul said on this matter of instruction and i know this has been going on for a little bit don't worry it's not going to be too much longer i feel like these episodes are getting longer and longer as we go along if you think i should split them up in the 30 minute segments by all means let me know hit me up on facebook on twitter uh, or on Instagram, I believe, now what? Just shoot me a message, let me know. Be like, Tim, these hour-long messages, man, they're really long. Can you like chop them in bits, you know, half-hour bits or something like that? I want to do what uh, really uh, makes makes it more convenient for y'all to listen because I know everybody has a busy schedule and time. Anyways, digressing on and not making it longer than it needs to be, let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says here, right here at verse 1, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Or in other words, what the situation is going here is there is a person in the Corinthian church who is sleeping with his mother, some scholars debate whether it was his mother or whether it was his mother-in-law. Regardless of the details, this is still disgusting and wrong. And like Paul said, this isn't even this isn't even something that the Gentiles do, but you're allowing this in the church. And then he goes on to correct them saying, you, are, you don't even feel bad about this. You haven't mourned over this. This person needs to be removed from your midst. He needs to be kicked out of the church. But you haven't done this. Picking it back up on verse 3. For I, in my part, though absent in the body, because he's writing this in a letter, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Wow. Wow. This verse, I mean, it, it's scary sounding. Paul is saying that he is pronouncing judgment on this person, which goes ahead. And as I talked about before, this kind of shuts up the people who say, oh, you can't judge me. You know, that that is a fellow Christian. No, I mean, Apostle Paul right here is judging somebody inside the church. Um Once again, he's not judging whether or not the person is saved or not, but what he is judging are the actions that this person is committing. We have every biblical right to do that as a church for other believers. Once again, not the unbelieving world, but believers. And then in verse 4, he continues on, or actually verse 5, sorry, he says he's going to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Delivering to Satan? So essentially what Apostle Paul is doing here is he is saying that this person, we are kicking him out of the church, and this is just like we talked about earlier. He's kicking him out of the church, removing him from the spiritual blessings and the protection and everything that goes along with being part of the church. And Satan is going to be able to have his way with him. God is going to allow Satan to mess with this person. And you see the reason why. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Either two things are going to happen. Number one, this person is a genuine believer and Satan is going to mess with him, just like he messed with Job and all these other things. And the intent is that he realizes the ramifications of what he did And he comes back into repentance. Or number two, he's a Christian and he still is refusing to repent. He's so twisted and lost as his own sick, sinful doctrine that God could possibly take this person from this earth early because he is of no spiritual good here. I mean, read the words for the destruction of his flesh. Now, this gets debated sometimes. Destruction of his flesh, was this a... uh, a literal term of him dying or is this more of a spiritual type thing regardless of the situation the point of the matter is is when you have been kicked out of the church satan now has free reign over you and god is allowing that to happen and as apostle paul said and we keep pointing out The purpose is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's this person comes to repentance and they recognize what they're doing is wrong. And then Apostle Paul in verse 6 starts chewing out the Corinthian church on how they've handled this matter. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact, just as you are in fact unleavened. So what, what, what Paul is saying here is a little leaven leavens out the whole lump of dough. What is he talking about? He's saying what I was saying in the beginning here, that sin is like a cancer. And if you don't stop it where it's at, it's going to spread all over the place. If you let a little leaven inside that lump, inside that lump, leaven was something they put in bread to go ahead and help make it rise up. If you put a little, little, little leaven inside that bread, the whole lump of dough is affected by that leaven. You need to remove the leaven, become a new lump again. That's what Paul is saying. You need to remove this unrepentant sinner out of your church because he is ruining your church. He continues on in verse 7, he says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, he continues to chew into them, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the people, the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. So what he's saying here in verses nine through 10 is he's like, I told you guys, stop associating with immoral people. But when I said that, I wasn't talking about the people of the world, the unbelievers, because if you stopped associating with unbelievers, how else are you going to spread the gospel? You're going to have to leave this world and go to heaven uh, if you stop doing that. You need to continue spreading the gospel. So yes, associate with them. We see Jesus doing that so many times. And Jesus did it without compromising his values. He went to the tax collectors and he ate dinner with them. Now, this is not saying it's okay for you to go, well, I'm going to go evangelize at the strip club tonight. Yes, I'm going to do it. No, you're not going to throw yourself into temptations way like that. But essentially, look at your everyday lives, the people you work with, all these different things. These, This is the world that you're in right now. You're in that sinful world. This is your time to evangelate them, evangelate, evangelize them and bring them into Christianity. But verse 11 gets to the real meaning what apostle Paul said when he said associate with or don't associate with immoral people. Verse 11 says, but actually I wrote you not to associate and this is huge here. This goes back to what I talked about before with you need to stop hanging out with that person kicked out of the church. Verse eleven. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So what Apostle Paul is saying, once again, reaffirming what Jesus said: You treat them as an outsider, or a tax collector, a Gentile. When you kick them out of the church, you no longer associate with them. Even Apostle Paul adds on, don't even eat with them. This is going to be a really hard part for people to do. Because like I said, they have become friends with this person. They maybe uh, commute with them or whatever the case may be. But the words of the Bible are clear. You cut them off. And that is because they need to be cut off. From those spiritual benefits they need to learn their lesson essentially it's like if mom you know uh punishes your your kid for doing something wrong but the dad sneaks in behind say hey man yeah don't worry about it you know your mother and you know you're good you're not really grounded you know you're not helping the situation you're ruining uh exactly what the church is trying to do by cutting them off apostle paul continues in verse 12 and this is what I, i talked about with judging For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, he's saying, we don't judge the outside. I don't have anything to do when it comes to judging unbelievers. That's for God. Do you not judge those who are within the church? In other words, he's saying, we're supposed to judge the people inside the church, not the outside world. We judge the people inside the church. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. And then he ends it with, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's the clear thing here. That's what we're getting at. That final step in church discipline. If the person refuses to repent, you kick them out of the church. And so many churches won't do this. Why? Because maybe the person gives a lot of money to the church. Maybe they're afraid of confronting it. Maybe they have twisted theology and they don't believe in talking about sin or something like that. Church discipline is a doctrine that we as a church must exercise in, and it was made so clear by the words of Jesus and how to do it, and then expounded upon with examples from the Apostle Paul. We didn't even go over all the examples of the Apostle Paul executing church discipline. We just went over one. But we have examples of why this is so important that we do. So my hope and prayer, as I said in the beginning through this episode, is that we as a church can grow from this. Because if we start executing church discipline properly, then we can shut up all those people who are calling Christians hypocrites. We can shut up the people who are constantly pointing at the church and saying, look at what they did, look at what that church did. I mean, all you got to do these days is turn on the news or go to YouTube and see churches writhing with scandal and all these other horrible things that give Christianity a bad name. Start exercising in this doctrine and you will see that go away. All right. Well, this is going to this was a long episode and like I said in the middle, if you think this is something that should get split up into two different segments, if you don't like these hour-long-ish episodes cuz I don't really have a timer or set a time limit and you'd rather see something shorter, go ahead, hit me up, let me know, and I can definitely accommodate that. Let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Dear heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord. I pray that we gained an understanding in your word today, Lord, through, through, through the, the words of your son, through the words of your servants like Apostle Paul, Lord, and we just understand why you want us to execute church discipline, Lord, and really just protect the purity of the church that you are creating, God. Thank you so much, and I pray that we could just learn and grow from this as a church. Thank you so much for everything that you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, appreciate it. Next time, we will be coming back with an episode on, I haven't really titled it yet, but kind of like the characteristics of a pastor. So look forward to that as we continue on in this mini-series. Y'all have a great one, and I hope you have a good week. And don't forget, pray for Southeast Louisiana after this hurricane smashed into them. They need it. This is Tim signing out.